the fundamental operations, growth, and health of our business community and humans, you know, consumers would absolutely unravel and fall apart if specialty finance and private credit lenders were regulated like banks. Banks cannot serve small businesses and consumers in the way in which they need to be served because of regulation. And regulation on banks is fantastic because it protects depositor capital. Like that is needed. Regulation is needed there because people are putting their deposits there where we do not want loss of principal. Specialty finance private lenders are going out with a much higher cost of capital, delivering that yield to their clients for higher risk than deposits, right? Like that that's a reasonable trade. We'll give you higher yield because we're going to go make investments that actually have corresponding risk compared to deposits, which shouldn't have any. I'm really impressed by our team at Four Capital and the newsletter that we've created that we send out quarterly. Talks all about our real estate firm. It talks about our forward thinking and tech-focused culture. And this is really what we believe sets us apart from most real estate companies. We offer exclusive content from Fort Capital's economic strategist, information on the latest acquisitions and dispositions, our top performing podcast episodes, most recent content pieces. You can sign up for our newsletter at fortcapitallp.com. All right. I'm going to be a student for a bit. And, and before I'm a student... I think it would be important for you to maybe give a little background on maybe your career and how you landed into the role that you're doing running peer asset management in the specialty finance industry. Sure. So my, my path to, to running peer asset management is a windy one, to say the least, and not linear in any sense. Actually, I started my career and I guess my life as a young entrepreneur. You know, I was always running a different business as a kid. I think, you know, one conversation I remember having with you is it was a similar where, you know, we were always rummaging up the next the next idea. And I was selling most Girl Scout cookies. And then I was, you know, doing a Christmas wreath business and then pressure washing business. And by the time I got to college, it's the time that I started my first real business, I say, like first real company that you know, was incorporated and paid people and made a real product. Well, I guess I had made real products before, but this one was actually set up in a much more official way, you would say. And it was a cell phone case company. So I started that in college, learned through that process that I really liked raising capital and selling the business. We ultimately sold it before I graduated college. And you know, I learned I did not like manufacturing a physical good. I did not like selling you know, individual products to people, but I really liked selling an idea, a theme, a brand, and you know, rallying around that. And so that was my earliest experience kind of forming, you know, what do I like to do and what am I good at? And I was kind of good at raising capital, getting people behind this theme, having people believe in the vision. And so I remember talking to a professor at the time, and it was you know, one of my accounting professors who was incredible. And you know, she said, you should go into investment banking. That's raising capital and selling companies. And for me, you know, looking back, that's kind of funny advice for, for an entrepreneur to go into an investment banking role. But I am so grateful that she gave me that advice because it was this incredible platform that allowed me to learn how different businesses work, you know, how do they scale, which ones were successful and why. I got entrenched in the venture capital community. And you know, by going the investment banking route, I learned the nuts and bolts of finance, of finance that I would not have learned otherwise. And you know, it turns out that I actually really like finance. And I wouldn't have known that without for advice. So I joined a firm here in LA and helped actually start the growth equity practice, 
where we were raising capital for later stage tech companies. So, you know, got to see how Silicon Valley checks were written, what sort of metrics did they care about for growth of these businesses. You know, I actually learned about fintech and financial technology for the first time being at this bank. We raised capital for an insurance tech company. And through that, I realized like I true and true am an operator, like on being on the service provider side, helping other entrepreneurs felt foreign. Like I was on the wrong side of the table. I was like, I need to get back to the operator side. This is not where I belong. It was fun and engaging and interesting, but it was not the right seat for me. And so I got introduced to a fintech company through one of the venture partners I had been working with on a capital raise at the bank. And you know, he said, hey, you know, we just funded this fintech company in LA. They need another adult in the room to help grow and scale this company. And it was actually real estate based. It was a real estate crowdfunding company, one of the very first ones out there. And I joined that firm to you know, kind of help institutionalize, bring more institutional capital markets to this smaller emerging fintech company. It was there that I kind of learned about this whole alternative finance space and you know, how deals get capitalized, the whole universe of investor capital from high net worth individuals all the way through big institutions and what role each of those capital providers play. And I ended up leaving that startup and helping scale a debt-based real estate fintech company. And that was really where I made my mark in the specialty finance space. And I think that that jump to that company is really the beginning of the peer asset management story. So I joined that company and it was a real estate lender. They were using the internet to make loans to fix and flip borrowers. So real estate investors who buy homes, renovate them and sell them. And they were using the internet to find these borrowers, deliver loans, but also to raise capital from individual peer-to-peer people and you know, use that capital to fund loans. So I joined when they had lent 40 million. We scaled that to about three quarters of a billion a year of flow by the time I left. And I was responsible for the entire capital markets backend. So 100% of our, our warehouse funding all the way through building out our entire syndication desk, which meant selling 100% of the loans that we originated to Wall Street. So we still had this kind of peer-to-peer angle, but over those years, we ended up actually you know, delivering our loans to Wall Street because we could do such significant volume compared to crowdfunding. And it was kind of through that capital markets wild roller coaster where I was breaking the, the funding source of our company it seemed like every other month because of the growth <laughs> we were experiencing and just having to deal with those challenges and navigate that, that the idea for this investment strategy that I sit and run today was born. Patch of Land was the name of the company at the time. That was where I met Connor. So Connor is my business partner, the other half of Pierre. He's a bit more publicly visible because he's all over Twitter and he's <laughs> very committed to to that presence. And I'm a slacker and I need to get back on it. But, but he, um, so I met him because he was running a fund that was investing in these kind of alternative loans that were being generated by more tech-enabled platforms. And he was investing in consumer loans, small business loans, and I was producing real estate loans. So I, I kind of found him at a conference and I said, I know you buy these type of loans. Will you buy paper from me? I'm gonna, you know, spin up a program for you. Be one of my first buyers. He very quickly is like, I, you know, real estate's not my area. I'm not gonna invest in it. But we had a long conversation, and through that, he said a few really smart things. And I don't remember specifically what he said, but I remembered like uh, that was really insightful. I want to be around you more. There's a lot I could learn from you. And so. Through my life, I like to collect people like that, that have these kind of aha comments who, or who are you know, just providing a different perspective or something that I hadn't thought of myself. Uh, so we started getting together every quarter talking about the specialty finance space, 
you know, what are you seeing? What's going on in the capital markets? You know, we became these confidants where Connor sat on the buy side of these assets. I sat on the sell side. And so we got to give each other industry tricks like, hey, when you're buying assets from a lender, you should ask about their special subservicers. Like, are they doing the servicing themselves or farming it out? You know, he would say all your loan buyers are getting new covenants put on them by their back bank leverage. Like you need to be packaging pools in this way to be meeting the new criteria. So we started being really helpful to each other and continue this dialogue about our space for a few years. And that was in about 2016. We started or we got together. I, I remember distinctly for a coffee in the in the fall of 2016. And we sat down and right when we sat down, Connor said, I'm spinning out from my my firm. He's worked at a big investment firm managing funds. He's like, I'm spinning out. I think we should be business partners. We're complementary skill sets, very different interests and insights. I think we'd be make great partners. I was like, whoa. <laughs> I was like, well, we, we had, had, and I really need to give him credit for being that impetus and that push to say, like, let's do this. And at that coffee, we flushed out, hey, we've been talking about these investment themes. I think it'd make a great fund. He's always been in fund management. I've always been on the operator side, you know, running, building businesses. And so together, we were an interesting pair to launch a fund and, and launch an investment firm around the capital markets ecosystem of specialty finance and where there were gaps in funding that large institutions weren't filling. So we started that in the fall. We kind of incubated it for about six months and then officially launched the firm in 2017. So it's been a six, six and a half year type type ride for Pierre, and it's been amazing to say the least. And can you describe kind of the size and scale of the firm as it is today before we start digging in? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we've been around for six and a half, seven years. We, you know, we manage capital on behalf of institutions, you know, large foundations, wealth management firms. We manage capital actually for some legacy high net worth clients of ours who've invested in our fund vehicles. And from a scope and size standpoint, our typical deal size is between five and 25 million. You know, our largest deal we've done is 50, the smallest deal is a million, but we really stay in this five to $25 million deal size, which is what makes us unique compared to the largest private credit funds in the, in the US, the names that people would know, they're doing a 50, $100 million deals. And by saying in the sub $25 million space, we don't have to compete for our transactions. We're the only counterpart to go do them. Which gives us pricing power, ter- you know, power on terms. You know, you you know the drill. Okay, you wrote a tweet and you said we like to buy performing assets from distressed sellers as opposed to buying distressed assets. You can get great prices for great assets instead of great prices for messy assets. What does that mean? <laughs> so you're describing you're you're describing half of what we do at Pier. Okay, so we do really two main transaction types at Pier. The first is where we go and buy portfolios of loans from stressed sellers. And that's what that tweet is talking about. So imagine there's a fund in New York that's been aggregating small business equipment loans against tractors and trailers. They've been going and buying those from small business equipment lenders over the past five years. They've built up a book of 10 or 15 million of these loans and they're holding them. Maybe they had bank leverage on them. They had a credit facility levering those loans and interest rates jacked up. Maybe they, you know, maybe that their funding became out of balance and they were, you know, their cost of debt was too high versus what those loans were producing. So they have to shut down their fund, sell the assets, send back the, whatever capital they can get, send it back to their investors. So they would come to us to peer and say, hey, we've got this portfolio. Will you buy it from us? 
it's 10 or $15 million. So they can't really go to a broker who's going to sell it. It's not worth a broker's time. And they're going to come directly to us because they, you know, met us at a conference five years ago. Or it's, you know, someone Connor, you know, had actually purchased loans from a few years back. We'll buy, buy those loans at a discount. So instead of paying 100 cents on the dollar, we'll pay 85 cents on the dollar and take a portfolio of loans that yields 8 or 9% and get them to yield the low 20% IRRs by buying them at a discount. So that's a performing portfolio of loans that was mismanaged by the fund manager. They put, they put wrong debt on it. The loans are fine. They just can't operate it and they need to sell it. Or maybe they had like one big investor who said, I want my money out. It wasn't a debt problem. They said, I need my capital, sell the assets and give me back my money. They would come to us to sell it. And what happens when you buy those loans from them? Obviously, the paper moves to you. Do you start servicing them immediately? Does the does the borrower actually know that you're the new owner or to them, they're just making payments? What actually happens? Yeah, so portfolios of loans can be sold servicing retained or servicing released, it's called. And I'd say most, the majority of the time they're sold servicing retained, which means that it's the same servicing company is going to service them once they're sold. Like for the example I gave about a fund manager holding a portfolio, they were probably, or not probably, they were utilizing an external third-party servicer. And so if we look at that servicing relationship and we have confidence in that entity to collect the underlying payments from the borrowers, we'll keep that in place. You know, there's friction for moving to a different servicer because the borrowers have to get the payment rails reset up. And so you capture more value by keeping the servicing with the existing servicer. So yeah, we move those loans over into our book. We own them. We'll create a, a servicing agreement with the servicer to face us directly. And then there's no actual payment interruption from the borrowers. And yeah, there are other situations which are a lot messier where we actually can get a lot more yield where servicing is released. And when servicing is released, there's actually a lot fewer buyers who can, or not a lot, there may be fewer buyers who can handle that type of transaction because there is some complexity. The very first example I gave about just, you know, the quick transfer into our name with the same servicer is one end of the spectrum. And then we recently did a deal, which is totally on the other end of the spectrum, where we actually restructured the loan product, created loans, bought them, and then set it up with a new servicer. (laughs) And this was a credit card company. They had a card product. And they shut down the operating company because they didn't get enough equity capital to run the business. They had to shut it down, which is a pretty common theme right now happening to certain specialty finance companies. Like the venture capital community had been closed for a lot of 22. And so these businesses are shutting down and they have financial assets they need to sell. So in this instance, it was a bunch of credit card balances. Well, we don't want to buy credit card balances and operate them like that. We're not in that business. So what we did was we converted all those credit card balances into a fully amortizing loan, a term loan. Like, okay, you got a $500 balance. This is going to be due in 12 months and you make, or in 10 months, and you're going to make 10 equal installment payments over the next 10 months to pay us back. And so we created a loan product with an interest rate and and that payment plan, and then set those loans up with a servicer and said, this is the loan product. Here's the tape. Please service them for us. It was a messy deal. It took a lot of operational work and we paid a lot less for that portfolio than we would pay for that first example. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You said that's one half of the business. What's the second half of the business? Yeah. So the other part is where we actually go and provide senior secured credit facilities to these specialty finance loan originators. So we come in with five to $25 million of senior debt in the form of a credit facility where we're lending against financial assets. So let me unpack that. So uh, uh, or I, I think the, the first layer of explanation that's the simplest is we lend 
to lenders. So it's a equipment lender who makes loans to small businesses against their tractors and trailers. We'll give that lender a $25 million credit facility so they can go make loans with it. Typically, banks are the lenders, but banks have deposit capital from depositors. If you're a non-bank lender, where are you getting your capital to make loans? From us, a lender. So we lend to the lender. And you know, I'll, I'll pause there and say, closing our universe to lenders and, and loan products is too small. We lend against other financial assets like advances or factoring products or other contractual cash flows. So it doesn't have to be exactly a loan, but you know, so that's the simplest term to to characterize what we end against. And just to confirm, why would I go to y'all instead of just going to a bank? Well, before all the bank up, <laughs> before this whole bank turmoil, I'll give the example in a normal bank environment and then talk about today. So even in normal bank times where there was you know, a lot of liquidity and banks were chasing good deals, typically sub 25 million is a bit too small for most banks. Like most regional banks don't wanna get involved until it's 50 to 100 million. So size is number one. There are some community banks, if they have very strong relationships with the individuals running those firms, they'll do a facility that's 15 million and under. But the issue is that most of the assets uh, that we lend against are so bespoke and unique that a community bank doesn't have a team to assess and make a good credit decision. So they just won't do it, which is great. That's smart bank lending. Like, for example, a deal that we did was a lender that lends to small businesses and they're collateralized by the data assets of the small business. So like things like customer lists, digital assets, like the average cart value of a checkout when you're buying a pair of shoes, how long did you stay on the web page? Like all of that data is actually packaged and sold on these liquid marketplaces. And like that was something I, we didn't know about. And we had to diligence and dive in and learn. And a bank is not going to be comfortable taking that innovative step in lending. And so I think it's, you know, innovation and new types of assets that aren't cookie cutter size, and then also like complexity, like operational complexity of the facility. So there are needs of specialty finance lenders that banks can't meet from an operation standpoint. So maybe a bank says, we only issue draws on Wednesdays. If you want to pull down more money on your facility, it's Wednesday, take it or leave it. And that's a real a real example from when I was running the capital markets at that real estate lender. And I was like, well, I don't need money on Wednesdays. We sell all of our loans on Tuesdays. We, we literally put our loans up for sale on Tuesday. Or excuse me, on Wednesdays, we would do that. And so all I, like, I didn't need to draw money because I was fully drawn on Wednesdays. It was very rigid. And the, the flexibility that these fast-growing, innovating specialty finance companies need, banks just can't deliver. I probably should have asked this at the beginning, but is this where the special and specialty finance comes in as you're kind of willing to do all the stuff that traditional banks don't really want to do? I like that. I've never I've never articulated it that way, but maybe that'll be my my new answer on the next podcast I go on. What is specialty finance? Well, this this smart guy Chris Powers defined it for me as such. That that's <laughs> how that's how I listen to it. <laughs> Okay, this is another dumb question. I could actually rename my podcast the Dumb Question Podcast. <laughs> if I came to you and I said, I need a $25 million line of credit to go loan against X, and you say, okay, and then 10 more people like me with great deals come in and say, I need 25, I need 25, I need 25. My question is, 
do you all have a capacity at which you just can't keep giving 25 out? Or is there a mechanism where you can always line up the next 25? Or is it a matter of just like how much equity you've raised on your end for your funds? Yeah. So, you know, deal capitalization is an interesting topic for firms like yours and mine. Like, so we manage a fund and that fund has captive capital that allows us to go out and do this size of deal. We also have a co-invest vehicle where we bring in larger LPs of ours who invest alongside our flagship fund. So when we have more opportunity than our fund can handle, we're putting that out to our co-invest vehicle. I would love if we were in the in the position, like you said, where it's a deal we like, we're getting multiple of those back to back to back. The reality of our space is it's so niche and and the lenders are so bespoke. And to succeed as a lender in specialty finance, you have to have some product angle or some unique borrower acquisition strategy, some compelling economic aspect to the loans you're making that make it want to be funded by a, a party like ours that there isn't this me too back to back of very similar specialty finance companies. So that just doesn't happen. But if it did, it'd be like, awesome, woohoo. And there have been instances where like our fund, we, we try to keep it you know as diversified as possible across various asset verticals within specialty finance. And so, for example, you know, we, we've done litigation finance and, you know, we, we really love it. There's unique specific sleeve within litigation finance we like. And when the opportunity is too big for us to take down with our existing capital providers, we actually go launch a new vehicle around it. And so, you know, we're we're working on launching another vehicle around that specific theme because we don't want our flagship fund to become a fund that is, you know, entirely made up of litigation finance because it's not broad-based specialty finance exposure. So, yeah, that that's how we would address that is creating some sort of industry-specific new vehicle to address it. All right. I cheated a little bit. I asked Connor, I said, what are some things I should ask? And in bold right here, litigation finance. And you just said, we love it. So now my question is, what is litigation finance and why do you love it? Yes. Uh, There's a lot of litigation finance I don't like. I'll start with that. There are sleeves and parts of litigation finance I, that I think are so interesting. And I think the reason Connor said that to you and is that it's been you know top of mind for us at Pierre, it's a very nascent asset class within specialty finance. So in you know the specialty finance has a billion verticals, you know, everything from traditional consumer credit card consolidation loans to things as innovative as music royalties lending to things as innovative as litigation finance. And when you look across these verticals of where institutional capital has created efficiency and therefore taking out alpha, like the opportunity to be a first mover, a lot of specialty finance is seeing billions and billions of dollars flooding into it. Litigation finance is still this kind of early frontier where it, you know it's mostly being done by lawyers themselves. So like lawyers are setting up firms to do litigation lending and there aren't as many finance minds or capital markets minds who have addressed it in a meaningful way yet. And to us, that's really exciting. Like when when a lot of brains haven't been on it yet and a lot of dollars haven't flooded into it, there's a lot more opportunity for yield, you know, and to capture the most interesting opportunities because you're not competing with anyone again. So the the part of litigation finance we really like is actually around IP. So patent infringement cases. It's funny, from a personal standpoint, you I like to work on things that I feel conviction around. And being an entrepreneur and defending inventors who have 
put their lifeblood into building a business that revolves around a patent they have, if that is getting ripped off by a large tech company and they are not getting paid royalties, that makes me mad. I'm like, I would love to fund those cases for those businesses that put in the blood, sweat, and tears and had the ingenuity and created an invention. They do need to be getting compensated for that, and they should be getting royalties from big tech companies. So Connor and I came across this specific vertical within litigation finance maybe a year ago and got really excited about it. And you know, there's a there's a whole host of reasons why this specific vertical is so interesting. But I think the reason I like it the most is that the damages on the cases are so quantifiable because you can see, okay, what technology was used in what product, what value of the purchase price of a product does that technology deliver? How many units have been sold and bought times that by a royalty rate that they would normally pay to license technology? And that's your damages in a case. So like, you know, imagine there's a company that had a patent that got infringed on. They go and pursue a lawsuit against a big tech company you would say, well, what, what are the, what's the reward going to come out of the case? And you can actually, it's like quite quantifiable, which I think in other areas of litigation finance, when there's more intangible damages or, you know, it caused a theoretical damage of XYZ, it's harder to model and predict. And at Peer, we love predicting cash flows, having, a, a, you know, when we buy any sort of loan portfolio, it's what are the expected cash flows on this book? And so in a lot of litigation finance, the damages can be squishy, but for IP tech specifically, it's, it's much more formulaic. So anyhow, I got down a rabbit hole, but I didn't explain actually what litigation finance is, if that would be helpful. Okay, do that. <laughs> so, so litigation finance is where a capital partner like Pierre would come in and fund the legal budget of a case for patent infringement. So say there's a company that you know had this technology that a big tech company infringed on, it would cost upwards of $5 million for that company to go litigate and get to a place where they would get a settlement or damages. And it's so costly. You hire a bunch of lawyers, you have to hire tech experts to go in and say, you know, yes, this patent, the technology in this patent is being used in this product. And you know, a lot of small businesses or even you know, medium-sized businesses don't have that type of budget to risk on that sort of case. And so that's where litigation funding enters, where you go to a finance company and they say, great, we'll give you the money, we'll front it, and then we'll get a portion of the proceeds on the back end because we took this upfront risk in funding the case. Okay. So I'm ABC LLC. I'm a, I'm a little tech company with a great patent and Google's using it, and I call Jillian and I say, Google's using it, and I need to sue them. I don't have the money to sue them. Will you put up the money for me? Okay, and I, I don't know anything about litigation finance, but I do know in a lot of worlds, lawsuits sound great, and then you never really, the lawyer, they always say the lawyers always win. What are you underwriting? The likelihood that they will win the case or is there something else that you're underwriting in this situation to know if it's a risk that you want to take? So something really important about Peer is that we actually are never the initial lender. So in this instance, we've partnered up with a litigation finance lender. Again, we lend to lenders. We invest with lenders. So I am not a lawyer by trade. We've spent copious hours understanding <laughs> the legal process for IP. And yet I don't have 20 years of IP litigation background. So we've partnered with a specialty finance originator 
who is run by a capital markets veteran who has been in specialty finance for you know decades. And Connor and I have actually known him for a decade. And he put up this new company and started this to do litigation finance and litigation funding consistently for all the counterparts, like you just said. So like ABC LLC would say if they came to me, I'd be like, hey, call this originator. They're the ones who are going to decide and make a, you know, decide to to fund your case. So yes, they would go to the specialty finance originator. The work that they do is tremendous up front. So they're evaluating the merits of the infringement. Like does the product actually utilize the patent in the way that that the the spirit of the patent says like is it being commercialized and used and though that's a conjunctive effort between ip lawyers but also tech experts you have to you know again the cases range from semiconductor infringement to like cloud-based things to actual mechanical technology and so it's not a room full of lawyers making that decision it's actual tech experts that you hire to come in and opine on that so it's a conjoined effort with a lot of upfront cost Right, which is why, again, these smaller companies can't do it themselves. For them to actually hire a tech consultant to opine and say, like, yes, this has been infringed, who can read the patent with a patent lawyer and do all that, all that upfront work, it can be and is millions of dollars. And so most investors have shied away from litigation finance. And I don't think it, it just hasn't had this critical mass of, or it just hasn't started rolling down the hill yet because you couldn't use small dollars to test it out. Whereas like equipment lending for $50,000 and $20,000, you can test it with a few million dollars. Whereas litigation finance, you need a mass amount of capital to diversify across enough cases to have to get rid of the, you know, the negative outcomes of one case being thrown out and putting up millions of dollars for that. So the unique part about the originator we're working with is they've created a, you know, a syndicate of over $150 million of capital that's going out and being able to diversify across a number of cases. And that's critical to our view on, on LitFi, which is why people have had a hard time getting into it. This is more just a curious question, but do often the large companies know they're infringing on patents and they're just like, well, just this is the cost of doing business? Or sometimes they're like, oh, we had no idea. And I can't believe we're getting sued by this little company. Well, the little company had, you know, the story is likely there's two, two typical stories. Oh, we were working on a joint venture with tech giant XYZ. And then they decided didn't go forward with the joint venture. And then they use the technology anyway. Or it's, oh, a year ago, we sent a letter to tech giant XYZ and said, hey, we're, you know, you're utilizing our technology. They've seen that and, you know, didn't respond didn't get back to them, said, we're willing to take the risk on it. And it's mostly because these companies don't have the firepower to go fight them. So in a sense, I'm I'm fired up about the cause to, you know, for the integrity of our innovative, like ecosystem that makes the US so amazing, like litigation funding needs to, it needs to be widgetized, I said. So like it's not it's litigation funding isn't a widget that the capital markets can consume yet in an efficient way, whereas like consumer loans are a widget or small business loans are a widget. So it's like we're going to go in there and be there early. And and over time, it'll become a widget that a lot of capital can flood into and create and take out a lot of the alpha 
and actually like get these cases funded efficiently. And I think you just answered the question. You had said something else. You said, how do you know or something about there's not enough brains in litigation finance yet? My question was really like, how will you know when the the business is saturated? Alpha will be gone. There will be multiple bidders on this stuff and it'll just be common knowledge. Or is there a certain metric or something you think about, whether it's litigation finance or anything, when too many brains have kind of entered the market? It's uh, brains, but more than brains, dollars. So it's the, the sheer number of dollars chasing the opportunity. So a really specific example is, so Connor made his name in consumer lending. So if people follow his Twitter. He's like a consumer credit expert. And he was very early to buying consumer loans off of these fintech companies' balance sheets. And he built a multiple funds around that buying them. He was delivering double-digit yields, you know, doing that, or he was seeing double-digit yields and investing that way. And then about three years later, when the biggest institutions in the country flooded in to invest in the space after these pioneering institutions created infrastructure and like created a widget out of these loans, delivered it to the ratings agencies, then these huge billion dollar buyers could come in and have like the infrastructure to understand the asset class. And so yields dropped from 12 to 14% down to six or 7%. And when that happened, that was around the time Connor and I had been having a lot of conversations. He's like, oh, gosh, this primary market is no longer interesting. It's gotten saturated, but the secondary market is interesting. And we both agreed on that. The secondary market for me, like I had been selling all these real estate loans to all these fund buyers. They would call me a month later and say, hey, you know, I know I bought this pool. Does one of your other buyers want to buy it? I need liquidity for XYZ reason. So I started making a secondary market. And then, you know, Connor noticed that like, the yields in the primary had just plummeted because of all the institutional capital and the secondary market trades were still happening at great prices. So it's more about like the amount of dollars that are investing in a space. I'm going to talk about two other kind of esoteric types of things you do, but there's a few things I want to get to before that. One is just like deal flow. Do you all just have, do the phones just ring and it's like, hey, here's this cool opportunity. People know your name and, and, and weird type of lending is coming in all the time. Or are you all kind of going out to the market saying, here are kind of five things we want to lend on. Call us if it fits that bucket. Or are you willing to hear anything? We're willing to hear anything. We call ourselves an opportunities fund, which means we're opportunistic. Like bring us the wackiest thing you can think of. Bring us a new asset class like data lending. Bring that to us. We'll wrap our heads around it, figure out how to lend against it. And I would say we're reactive for specific deals. So like specific deals come to us. We don't go out and get specific deals. But what we do do is we do a ton of like, you know, stoking the fire and like putting kindling in the fire and making sure that you know, the whole ecosystem of specialty finance has us top of mind you know, we go to conferences, we, you know, Connor's active on Twitter. We call various referral sources that we know, like the equity investors in specialty finance, the loan servicers, the lawyers, just reminding them, you know, once a quarter, like, hey, we've got dough to spend, like 10 deals <laughs> our way. But that's the cool part about what we do is 100% of the deals are coming through someone we know, or it's, it's an actual counterpart that we're friends with, or we've, our colleague that we've worked with in the past, or it's one degree of separation. And, you know, that makes our world smaller since we're only marketing that way. But I think it makes the deal flow quality much higher. And I'm just going through a few things, music royalties, litigation finance, data lending, collectibles lending, sports finance. 
all these things are coming in. Are there common traits, no matter what it is, that allow y'all to underwrite risk of certain deals? Or is every single one have its own nuanced way of looking at it? A combination of the two. So if we can't boil down one of those segments into the basics of another asset class we're an expert at, we can't do it. Like we've got to get back to some basic, okay, it's, you know, a really silly example is there was a lender that lent against or lent to consumers and collateralized it by Rolexes. And we're experts on consumer loans. Great. So we could boil it down. If there's no collateral, what do we expect the repayment to look like for this type of consumer borrower? We got very comfortable, like no problems. We 100% have confidence in, you know, or not 100%, but we have very high confidence, you know, in those curves. What we didn't have confidence in was a distribution network of Rolex sellers in the case that we had to go repossess Rolexes. We didn't have a loan servicer who was set up to go take Rolexes and sell them. We didn't have, you know, we, that didn't exist for us. And so we actually couldn't apply any value to that. We had to say, we're going to lend against this. We're going to lend to this lender as if there are no Rolexes. And let's just say we did not win that deal. <laughs> we have a lot of value. <laughs> and they came back and you know, they're like, pound sand. No, the, you know, the collateral has a lot of value. But to us, it doesn't have value if we can't dispose of it in a systematic, predictable way. So that's an example where it's not even a complex topic. It's just, you know, we understood the credit, but we couldn't assign value to something so we didn't have distribution. So yeah, well, we're, we look at everything and I would say most every type of lender can be boiled back to general small business lending or general consumer lending. It gets pretty like, like music royalties, for example, you can boil that back to general small business lending, like the, the band or the rapper or the rock band is a small business. So you can boil it back that way. And then obviously music royalties has an incredible amount of data, which is why we love it. And you're really analyzing cash flows. So you ask, like, you know, is there something similar to all these assets? We only lend against cash flowing assets. So you can look at a stream of cash flows, whether it's coming from, you know, a music catalog or whether it's coming from a, uh, you know, a, an IP litigation trial and assess the probabilities of those cash flow, the amount and the timing to get a value today. The next one's music royalties. So I'm Justin Bieber. I've got a great song. I'm getting paid by all these different people. Or somebody owns, well, let's start. Somebody owns the catalog of the song I created, correct? Is that a dumb question? Mm. That's a dumb, that, this, that this wasn't, is, I, I, no, <laughs> she's like, that was no, the dumbest no, thing no, I've ever no, heard. No, 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 that's not a dumb question. I was trying to parse it out because for Justin Bieber, that actually might be the case. But for an example of how music royalties as an industry works, okay. I don't want to talk about that. But for a typical artist like Justin Deber, who's smaller, <laughs> he, he, would, <laughs> he would own his catalog. Like that artist would own their catalog. And they would be getting payments in from you know, Apple Music and from Spotify and from YouTube. And they would get that royalty stream coming to them. That artist could then go to this music royalties lender and say, hey, I would like to take a loan out against the future expected revenue, streaming revenue of those songs, of these 10 songs. And that lender would say, oh, great, let's look at your you know, number of downloads, number of saves, number of playlists it shows up on. And we can get this really great curve that it shows you're going to be making $50,000 on this portfolio over the next 12 months. We'll lend you $25,000. 
And guess what? Apple and yeah, Spotify are going to pay me directly now as the lender. And once I get my loan paid back and a certain you know amount of extra payment, we'll then remit the rest to you. And this this artist, Justin Deber, he can actually now <laughs> go out and get studio time, book backup singers and backup guitarists to work on his second album. Okay. And go do that. Whereas if he didn't have access to that capital, he would have to wait the whole year, save up his money, save up his money, and then you know go out and try to get that second album rolling. Or he would have to sell rights, like really sell off the rights of that portfolio in, into perpetuity to get that capital. And so this is an interesting in-between where the artists actually get perpetuity value on their portfolios, but get a bit of an advance, it's called. Like I get an advance on that streaming revenue. Weird question. How many how many sources of royalty income does the average artist get? There's Apple, there's Spotify, but it seems to me like there could be a million different players online. Are these artists often getting checks from thousands of companies or is it 10 main ones? Like where are all the checks coming from? Yeah, the vast majority are coming through those specific streaming platforms you mentioned. There are tales all over the place. So, you know, if a commercial uses the song, that's going to the distributor. There's multiple layers of parties in that stream of of capital. So there's like there's this layer. It's a, a distributor who collects from all those and then they bring it all in and send it to you as the artist. And so that's where where the lender attaches to is that distribution point. And that distribution company is chasing from all these different places, whereas like Spotify and Apple are fantastic because they have they have direct. It's basically you call directly into the whatever that program is and you you directly reach in. So Spotify's tech platform is directly sending data into the distributor on a monthly or weekly or daily basis. And so it's fantastic because the distributor is not chasing them for the capital, whereas they're chasing the advertising company who use the who use the song. But you can really think of it, the bulk of the money is coming from these few big streaming platforms that everyone knows the names of. And the data basically says a lot of money is going to come in for the first six months because people are going to love the song. And just like everything, it'll fall off a cliff and like the new songs will be coming out. And that's kind of how the data curve looks. Exactly. And that's why buying well-seasoned song portfolios are, is actually a really good area to be investing in because that curve is, is very constant. Like there's just a, it levels off to a low level and it stays like that for a number of years. It's like an oil um, well. Whereas, yeah, exactly. Okay, real quick though. We talked about our new found up and up artist, Justin Bieber. Why would Justin <laughs> Bieber not be in this discussion? I realize he's large and famous and has lots of cash, but why is he not a candidate for this type of finance? Because he already has so much money, he doesn't need it. Well, typically these large, like the large, large names, like you're talking about, like the Taylor Swifts and the Justin Bieber, those portfolio sales, it really comes down to size again. Those portfolio sales are going to these two or three massive billion, billion, billion dollar private equity funds that have been set up around this strategy to go acquire those and deliver very predictable, but, you know, more single digit yields. So, you know, Matt, remember the trade that was in the news a number of years ago for Michael Jackson's portfolio, like the price that that went out at, it was such a competitive transaction because the biggest institutions in the country can bid on it. And again, it just takes out a bunch of the yield. So we would never be interested in deal sizes of that because the yield is going to be too low because they're just larger dollars chasing it. Okay. So he's in this market just at such a scale that it's not of interest to you because there's really, it's been dwindled down. Sure. Or, I mean, if you're Taylor Swift, I think from 
all of your other revenue streams, <laughs> like this tour she just did. I'm not sure financing is something she's needing a whole lot of. I mean, go Taylor Swift. Did and you now go? I didn't go. My daughter went and she's oh, basically absolutely. putting the NFL on her back right now and saying, come with me, NFL. I'll make you popular again. <laughs> I, I know. That was so funny. Which game was that? The, the Chiefs? Yeah, she's dating the Chiefs. I think, was he a tight end? Kelsey, yeah. 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 Oh, man. Too funny. Okay. I kind of want to just pivot for a second. You kind of made this comment earlier, and I, and I, and we're getting to it now, but I think this is going to be fascinating. I, I asked you something, and you said, well, in a regular environment, this is what it is, but in today's environment. And so I want to talk about today. You get to see things. You get just to see unique data points on like how the economy might be looking or capital markets. If I just say to you, what are you thinking about today? Where are we heading right now? What's been interesting to you over the last few weeks and months? Sure. So, you know, trailing on the, the last comment we had earlier about environment, I think it was around banks. Like, why would these lenders not go to banks? Why would they come to you? And I said, oh, there was a previous environment that we had all operated in. And now there's today. And that's the context for the question. Today, banks are having to be as careful as ever with lending for a number of reasons. One, there's less deposits. Depositors at banks are pulling their capital out at faster rates than ever. And they're flooding into money markets that are actually paying you know 5% plus. US treasuries that are paying 5% plus. Like, Why would you have dollars parked in a bank right now is the question. And the answer is people aren't. And so banks don't have the money to lend. Like a lot of banks just don't. Whereas, okay, in 2020 and 2021, there were trillions of dollars of stimulus pumped into the economy and they sat in banks because there wasn't yield. You know, there was nowhere to go put your money to make, you know, there's nowhere to put short-term money to make yield. So money sat in banks, lending was prolific, deals were getting done left and right. Real estate lending was just, uh, you know, flying at great prices. Banks were even getting creative with specialty finance. I saw a bank, a regional bank, do a, a very large music royalties transaction we heard about, which was shocking. That would not happen today in our environment. Banks are sticking to what they know, core lending, risk off, and there's just less dollars to lend. So that's the number one thing. So what does that mean for specialty finance and non-bank lenders? It means that there's a lot more deals and you get to be as selective as ever. And you know, the, the opportunity to kind of capture good businesses that otherwise would have been bankable is possible now because of this lack of liquidity in the banking ecosystem. So when you say what's happening and what are you thinking about, like I, I get quite excited. <laughs> okay. It's great. Are people paying their loans? Are people paying their music royalty loans and their litigation finance loans? Maybe the question's more, especially with Connor's background, the consumer. Is the American consumer paying their auto loans, paying their credit card debt? What are you seeing from that side? Like, the, how's the consumer doing? You have a view that not a lot of people have. Subprime consumers, which are you know typically lower earners, lower FICO scores, are struggling with inflation from an absolute dollar perspective, right? If it, you know if you make a certain amount of money and bread increases by a dollar or two, like you're struggling much more than someone who has a larger pie of capital to work with. So, inflation is causing challenges for the subprime consumer. What's interesting is that, you know, the headlines you're seeing in the Wall Street Journal that everyone's reading is, you know, the consumer is defaulting at rates never be seen before, you know, that sort of rhetoric. And 
the truth is we've just crept above, we are above pre-COVID baseline consumer default levels. So from you know, mid-20 to 21 and the beginning of 22, consumer defaults were the lowest they've ever we've ever seen. They were the lowest historical defaults consumers have ever had because of stimulus. So since then, the default rates of consumers have just been marching up and marching up and marching up. And, you know, they're recently, you know, in the last six months have finally popped over that historic baseline level. So, you know, to us, from an absolute standpoint today, our defaults out of whack and just wildly higher than baselines before COVID? The answer is no, they're not, but they are steadily rising. And so for an investor like us, when we're pricing deals, we're pricing in much higher default expectations and baseline, just looking out even six months or 12 months. But the beauty of running our strategy, which is very short duration, that's something we haven't covered yet. We like to stay sub 12 months on our deal duration. And that's partly because you know, I don't want to be in the business of being a macro economist, like the best macro economists in the country get it wrong all the time. And I'm, you know, I'm certainly not sitting here trying to be smarter than than those folks who spend every minute of the day predicting these things. But what I can say is if you're investing short duration, less than 12 months, you need a buffer that, you know, can withstand 12 months of pain. And then you can be reactive and nimble to changes and, and what you're seeing real time in front of your face and not having to have that crystal ball create your success or your demise. So the consumer's struggling. Yeah, for sure. The consumer's struggling. I don't think it's as dire as headlines are making people think it is today, but I don't think it's getting better before it gets worse, is my summary. And then just going to what you said about short duration, y'all are only interested in loan. So when you're underwriting a loan, you're just saying, we only want to be in this deal for less than 12 months. What's the shortest you want to be in a loan for? Six months? Or is there, is there any limit to how short you want to be into a loan for? Ooh, that's a great tweet I should write, actually. There is such thing as too short of duration. And we don't like credit card products because the repayment on those balances can be two weeks, 30 days, 60 days. And the reason you don't like too short of duration is that in a downside and a default scenario where you're, you're having to go own those loans from the lender, like if the lender goes under and you have to go secure that collateral, cash is going to be coming in so fast from those underlying borrowers that while you're trying to get your hands on the collateral and pull that loan portfolio into your fund, that lender could be taking that cash out and paying and doing other things with it. And so it's almost too high a velocity where in a downside, it's hard to actually get there before the loans are repaid. So there's a sweet spot. It's maybe two months to 12 months is the sweet spot we like to be. I don't know if this is something that that you track, but it's something that I've thought a lot about. And I think it falls. It's in the auto loan deal. But I'm thinking about what happened in 21, 22. Car prices went nuts. People were buying cars left and right and using floating rate auto loans to buy them. It was like the most obvious thing ever that these cars were going to plummet in value at some point. Yes. And so I was telling somebody is probably six months ago. I was like, how can I short auto loans? Or I don't even know what I would. I think I'd be shorting auto loans, um, not getting repaid. From your seat, is this something you're playing in? What's going to happen to all these auto loans that were originated at, you know, close to 0% in 2122? And now the collateral behind it's crazy. People's savings are going down. They're not going to make payments. And there's going to be all this auto loan debt out in the market. Yeah. 
there's a lot of activity in auto right now for for other reasons than what you're saying. So yes, I think what you're the picture you painted, I agree. There's going to be pain. There is there's going to be pain there. Interestingly, car payments are actually higher on the totem pole of what consumers pay than other debts they have. And that's because that actually gets them to their job. They can sleep in a car. Like The car actually provides much more utility than, than other debts. And so it's, it's actually higher on the totem pole. But anyhow, I think there's going to be pain there. That story is written. It's coming. It's starting to happen today. And what is that causing? Causing banks to pull out of auto lending. Banks are out. They're pulling their credit facilities from dealership groups or from auto lenders. And so these lending groups are having to pay off their credit facility because the bank is saying, give me back my money. I don't want to be exposed to auto loans. And they have to go sell those portfolios of loans. Where do they go to sell them? To us. There's a price for everything, in our opinion. And when you have a seller that really needs to get something off the books, really needs to sell it and has some hair, the price for the you know the group willing to do the work and get in there can be really attractive. So we've done a few auto deals in the last month. We did not invest in auto in any significant way during that 20, 21, 22 period for the reasons you mentioned. Like for us to get in and do a transaction, we would be using, you know, a 70% value to the sticker price of a car versus what was put in the loan tape. And so the deal we were we weren't winning deals because we were pricing them too low. Whereas today we're winning deals because banks aren't touching auto anymore. There's a lot of distress on the sellers. And so that's what's driving opportunity for us, but it's at a very interesting price. There are a few metrics you need to look at when doing auto portfolios. One of the most important metrics is disposition value, which is essentially like what can you get when you repossess the car. Across the industry, oftentimes 30 or 35% is used. We're using a fraction, a fraction of that value when we're us, you know, pricing up a portfolio. All right. You don't make these loans, but somebody was like, what is going through the lender's mind that was making the loan in 21, 22? You could, you could say, oh, well, they were doing it in real estate. They were doing it on a lot of things. But yeah, real estate's an asset. You can rent it. There's a lot more to real estate. We all know that cars, as soon as you drive them off the lot, they kind of lose value. Was it just like, I, I don't, I'm not saying anybody's greedy. Is it greed? It just seems like one of the most obvious loans that should have never been made was auto through 21 and 22, where I think there was memes going around that you would have been better off buying a used Kia than investing in the S&P 500. Like auto prices were just going up. And so it seems to me like, okay, what would be going through the lender's mind that made the original loan? And was it just that maybe this is the new world that we're living in and this seems safe? Or is there another incentive to keep making loans even when there's a lot of... And I don't even think this is a hindsight 2020 type of thing. Like I think this was just as obvious as it could have been. What are lenders thinking that we're doing it? Just we can make uh, money? I agree. We saw that too. So we weren't, you know, we weren't investing in the primary market and not. It was very obvious. There are synonymous questions you can ask of banks who are buying 10-year treasuries at zero rates that got them into big trouble. So I, I don't know what was going through their brain because I agree with you. We agreed at that time. I think there is some incentive for origination fees for certain originators, like you're making points up front and have less, less concern on the back end. Uh, there was so much money out there that if you could get yield anywhere, 
like you, money was burning a hole in people's pocket. So I think it's just when there's a lot of money, worse decisions are made because you're chasing deals that aren't as good. So like right now, I think is a very fun time to invest because there's not much liquidity out there. And so you get to invest in the best deals. I mean, I remember in 20, 20, end of 20 and 21 and start of 22, like there was co- finally there was competition for some of the deals we were doing. Like some of the big, big, big funds were coming down trying to do $25 million and $10 million deals. And for the first time we were competing and we saw some pretty stupid term sheets out there, yes. not to be rude, but yeah. <laughs> like, wow, you're lending at 95 or 90% advance rates. Like, whoa, okay. Like we're not going to compete against that. We'll sit back and wait until there are, there's less dollars around the table. So I don't know. I think it was a function probably of just a lot of liquidity and people chasing deals, needing somewhere to put the money. All right. I'm going to run through, we're going to bring it home. I'm going to run through some of the the questions that you saw on, on Twitter as well. I think they were smart. I didn't totally understand them all. The first is, how do you think about secured versus unsecured notes? Great question. So every credit facility we do is secured by loans, contractual cash flows, or advances. The question about unsecured and secured goes a layer deeper. Are those loans that are collateralizing us secured to a specific asset or unsecured? Does that make sense? So in our mind, when we're evaluating a portfolio of loans, advances, contractual cash flows to lend against, you're looking at, is there an asset behind it or not? Secured generally refers to physical assets like a car. So like auto lending is secured. Unsecured could be for or music royalties could fall under unsecured, which seems so silly because you're actually secured to a stream of cash flows that you have direct access to and you have your hands around through those direct payments from the streamers. So some some people say, oh, we only, we only like to invest in loans that are secured to assets. And I go, yeah, but a used car in 2021, would you prefer that or a music royalty stream when music royalty streams can be seen as unsecured? So this is a topic that is often brought up early and often in specialty finance. And I sit here and and actually, Chris, when we started one, our first fund, we had a pie chart at the very top of our monthly reporting that showed underlying exposure to secured versus unsecured loans. After three years, I decided, let's take that off. This is actually, this is because, pe- because other people think of the world this way. It doesn't mean that we think of the world this way. And we don't think one is better than the other. They're just different. So I guess my answer to, to this question is, we're different than a lot of typical credit investors. We don't, it, you know, unless you can ascribe certain value and have a great disposition plan for the collateral, it can actually be a distraction and create phantom value in a loan if you don't have those first two things sorted out. So we like them both is my answer. Okay. <laughs> I like it. What percentage of deals do they underwrite needing to repost specifically at what default rate? So we don't use debt on our deals. We use all equity. So I think, you know, that's helpful. Can you read the question again? There was a second part. Yep. What percentage of deals do they underwrite needing to repo? And then specifically, what default rate? Ooh, well, gosh, if you heard the varied assets that we lend against, you know, what sort of advance rates? It's tricky. We we have a term sheet out at 60% right now. And, you know, we have a deal in the book that has a 90% advance rate. So it you know we it varies widely based on the certainty of the underlying cash flows as well as the duration right like if you have a loan portfolio with three months duration left 
you can pay or lend against it at a much higher advance rate than one that has full 12-month duration. All right, we're going to bring it home on two more. Ask her to argue why and why not private credit firms should be regulated like a bank. Yes, I was hoping you would ask this one. <laughs> so, so, so um, I, I love this one. I can't remember who asked it. But um, so no, emphatically no. And not because it is my business and my life, my, my, the lifeblood of my, of, of my world, but because the fundamental operations, growth and health of our business community and humans, you know, consumers would absolutely unravel and fall apart if specialty finance and private credit lenders were regulated like banks. Banks cannot serve small businesses and consumers in the way in which they need to be served because of regulation. And regulation on banks is fantastic because it protects depositor capital. Like that is needed. Regulation is needed there because people are putting their deposits there where we do not want loss of principal. Specialty finance private lenders are going out with a much higher cost of capital, delivering that yield to their clients for higher risk than deposits, right? Like that that's a reasonable trade. We'll give you higher yield because we're going to go make investments that actually have corresponding risk compared to deposits, which shouldn't have any. So that's why banks can be regulated. You know, that works. Imagine this, this rock band or Justin Deber we talked about. He would not be able to go make his second album if this private credit specialty finance lender existed. He would have to wait a whole year. He, because this product exists, he gets to grow and flourish profitably, scale his his business, which is this, you know, band. And like I see this time and time again, the value that these specialty finance lenders give to these ecosystems of small business uh, is paramount to our economy. Like and if and if we are ever regulated in that way, all of that lending goes away, all of that growth and opportunity goes away for businesses and, and individual people. I love it. It supports the American dream. Yeah. And I'm on the board of a bank. And so I <laughs> you know, sit there and I see what we're able to do and what we're able not to not do. And the pace at which we're able to innovate, launch new products is staggeringly different than a non-regulated lender. All right. Do you have a favorite story when it comes to buying a non-performing loan? Yes. So I'll say a portfolio of loans. I think my favorite is, I remember it distinctly, maybe 2018, Connor called, or I actually, no, he didn't call me. I came into our office in Manhattan Beach and he's sitting there with the Wall Street Journal open. Like it's a hard physical Wall Street Journal open. And he like, I walked in, he pointed straight to the page and he goes, Jillian, we're buying this loan portfolio that's in the journal. I was like, what? What are you talking about? And the print Wall Street Journal has a section that shows you know, things in liquidation and bankruptcy, and it's not on the online platform. Like You can't see it on online. And the only place you can find it is in the physical paper. And like, I always thought Connor was old school and getting his physical newspaper in the mail every week. And this was specifically why I just hadn't known. So we found it in the newspaper. We chased down the receiver, you know, got in touch with them, and actually purchased two portfolios out of a bankruptcy. All right, I'm going to end it and bring it back to where we started. I have two daughters. You started this whole deal and you said, I started businesses. I had this entrepreneurial bug since I was a kid. And I have to maybe tie that back to your parents or some situation that you grew up in or how you were raised. 
What gave you the entrepreneurial bug? Was it your father? Was it your mother? Was it some set of circumstances? Like, can you tie back to kind of what gave you the drive that you had? So I think first and foremost, my my parents didn't give us money. We didn't have an allowance. So if I wanted to buy anything or or go to the movies, <laughs> I had to earn the money. So it kind of started out of necessity. Like I think the first thing I did to make money was collect pine cones in the yard for my dad. He'd pay five cents for a big bucket, like a big bucket. It was terrible. I worked all day. And that was the only thing I could do at like five years old to make money. And, you know, so I, I would say it came out of necessity. But but mostly because of how my dad shaped my childhood. So he shaped that program around the pine cones and shaped, hey, it sounds like you're going to a movie Friday. You know, how are you going to pay for it? I'm like, oh, you're right, dad. Got to figure that one out. One of my favorite traits was I was I was low on cash and I, I really wanted this iPod Nano. And my dad won it for, I don't know, he got maybe from work or there was some some reason he got this iPod and he didn't need it, didn't want it. And I didn't have enough cash to buy it from him. And I said, Dad, I'll give you a haircut every month for the rest of my time living under your roof if I can have the iPod Nano. So he was constantly creating these instances where I had to get creative with money. And then beyond that, he did a a number of things to give me the self-confidence that I could do more than, you know, run a, you know, Girl Scout campaign or, or run Christmas wreaths and he always was leaving articles on my desk of these amazing women who were going out. I remember, you know, the Forbes 30 under 30, or he'd leave an article of, you know, other young entrepreneurs. I remember in college, I came back for a break and he had a, a profile on Mark Zuckerberg laying on my desk. And he asked a question as he walked away and he was like, what's so different between him and you? And he just left the room. And I was like, oh, I don't know, dad. He's this amazing entrepreneur who started this huge tech company. and But it was that that he implanted in my brain at a young age through showing me that these idols that I had in business and, uh, you know, they, they were just people too. And they had flaws or they, had, they just had similarities and were just people. And I think that was the playing field that kind of got me on this path to say, I can do it too. And if I could think of something or I had a dream or an idea... What was what would make it so I couldn't do it? And that was the lens, not not starting with what would make it so I can. It was what would make it so I can't. Like I have all the tools and I have, you know, that that ability inside myself to go create. Also, there was one other thing that he did that was really helpful. So yeah, making me feel similar to those who had succeeded, the articles. Oh, and then failure. So he he kept putting this in my brain always as a kid was. Yeah, you're, you know, your businesses are going to fail. Like they will, and that's fine. You're going to have an idea. It's not going to work. You might as well start getting those out of the way now while you're young. That seems like a good idea. And so I, I remember as early as I can remember, I said, I'm going to start my first real business in college and it's a safe place to fail. And if I fail, oh, well, I got a college degree. I graduated college and I could go get a job. And I did that in college and, you know, it was maybe a success. It was kind of a successful thing that I got to do. And but I, I was doing it to fail. And that was really cool, not having this expectation that I had to make it work. It, would, it, was, it was a plan. Like that was a plan in college to fail a company. And that gave me the confidence and courage to actually go do it. So those are my ramblings. But my dad is probably the greatest inspiration and source of shaping my entrepreneurial lens. But he wasn't. Oh, and then the other thing is my dad was an employee. So he never was an entrepreneur. He worked as an employee his whole life. 
And he was an inventor. You know, he, you know, his name is on some of the earliest patents for touchscreen technology. So the iPod Nano, oh, I remember why he had the iPod Nano. We <laughs> he invented it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I remember. Uh, his chip is the touch, you know, the, that recognized your finger going around the circle on the iPod Nano. That was, you know, his name's on that patent. And so he created meaningful technological innovation and value in this world for us and, you know, continued working into his 60s. And he continued to share with me the, the monetary value that you can get by being the owner and taking those risks is far more than you can typically get as an employee. And so I saw that in front of my eyes, you know, through his life path. And he encouraged me, take those risks, be the one to go out, don't do it for a company. And yeah, he was a really incredible dad. So I'm going to end it there. Cheers to your dad. He he raised a remarkably talented person. That's really, really cool. And I got some notes. My daughters are only six and four, so we have a, a bit to go. But you said you started collecting pine cones at five. So we have <laughs> we have sticker charts. So we have sticker charts. And once we get to 30, we go to Target or they can save so they can save for two weeks or save for more if they want to get something better. And my daughter the other day were driving or driving to Target, and she said, "Dad, we are so lucky that there is a tar- there's a Target like a mile from our house." She's like, "We are so lucky that there is a Target a mile from our house." And I was like, "Wow, you've got a lot to learn about this world." <laughs> you know, the other thing he did when I was that age, like six, I was in kindergarten, so five or six, and to go out and sell Girl Scout cookies. He would stand at the end of the driveway of that whatever house I was going to go sell door to door. And I had to walk up by myself, ring the door, and we'd practice my pitch before we leave the house. <laughs> so, Jillian, what are you going to say? Why would they want to buy these cookies? Okay. And if they put down one on the order form, how could you get them to buy more? And so I came up with these scripts like, oh, well, do you want to bring some into the office next week for your, your <laughs> office and, you know, colleagues? And so I come up with these little snippets are, oh, wouldn't it be nice, you know, to give these to your, you know, to your neighbor next door if they they're they want home. So they didn't order any from me. Do you want to get some from them? And he made me practice those scripts by myself in kindergarten. And I always sold a lot of cookies. I love it. Thank you so much for today. This was an incredible episode. Yeah, it was fantastic to talk to you, Chris. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com.